Hi, everybody. Thanks a lot for participating. The alternative title for this is um, an excuse to walk away from your family and say it's a work commitment. Um, I hope everybody is doing well under the circumstances and healthy. Um, we really appreciate you fitting this in. Um, it's supposed to be a brown bag and sort of pre-coronavirus. Uh, that meant you had a brown bag full of lunch uh, post I think that what people have in their brown bag this afternoon probably varies from uh, participant to participant. Um, so again, it is supposed to be interactive, the brown bags, and what is better than that than a webinar where you can't speak or be seen. But we really do encourage the questions. Daniel, if you're still there, are they able to ask questions during or is there a reason it has to wait till the end? They are able to ask questions during. Um, that is dependent on the structure of the presentation, um, but the questions should pop up through the Q&A function. Okay, we'd really encourage it. We're trying to keep with that uh, brown bag model. Um, and I think this is more useful, not just for questions, um, but feel free to offer your examples as we go through because uh, we're very interested in other people's experience on social media at trial. Um, again, just real quick, you heard the names of the other participants, uh, but Matt McDonald, you want to raise your hand? I can't describe you differently. You're um, the young man with the beard, so I'm sort of stuck. So uh, Matt, who just raised his hands, is an associate at Barrett and Single, the esteemed Barrett and Single. Um, he uh, is both a member of the White Collar Steering Committee that's hosting this program uh, and also the, the liaison to the New Lawyers Committee of the BBA. So thanks for Matt for participating. And then also we very much appreciate Steve Barino, um, who hopefully you know that I'm this one uh, and Steve is the remaining person on the screen. So Steve, as you heard, is M uh, excuse me, MWV Multimedia Forensics uh, Investigative Services. He has um, been uh, admitted as an expert both in state and federal court. He does forensic analysis of social media, cell, um, web and other forensic data. We've used him, he's terrific, and really appreciate him uh, bringing his perspective to the panel. Uh, again, the, the plan, just to give you an idea of what we're going to cover today, it, we really are going to focus, because we only have the hour, on social media at trial in terms of jurors, juror selection we're going to start with, um, <clears throat> juror activity during the trial and post, um, we're going to address examples of how things go off the rails, the ethics of monitoring or even not monitoring jurors, and uh, Steve will cover how you capture that stuff and what kind of material you can get. So that, that's what we're going to do today. Again, please do ask your questions. I'll try to remind you throughout, or if you have an example, um, we'd really welcome those. So, you know, we're going to turn uh, first sort of catch your interest and just see how much scary information really is out there uh, about your jurors in a case. Uh, Steve is going to start with a quick example uh, of a tool that he uses to get some information about juror activity in the courthouse live. Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, so I'm going to show you guys, I'm going to share my screen here and show you um, it's a couple examples through a PowerPoint. Um, what this is going to show is, um, first of all, what we're going to see here is a search. Uh, so this is a this is X1 Social Discovery software. Um, what we're going to see here is this is going to be a location-based search. Uh, the location in this demonstrative goes toward Bo Boston Logan Airport, I believe. Um, but the next slide will show you 
another location-based search, um, and then what we do is we filter it down. So with this software, it's available to law firms and investigatory um, personnel um, for a, you can either do a monthly subscription or a yearly subscription with the software. Don't have the exact numbers uh, offhand, but you can contact sales, um, X1 social discovery software. Uh, so what this does is this will actually allow you to use, utilize a map and draw a square around the uh, area you'd like to capture live social media. So in this instance, we're showing you Boston Logan International Airport. And again, the next slide will be more geared towards um, obviously jurors, but so this, this shows you active live tweets in this instance um, that are going out in that location area, area search, um, which can be very useful. So what we show, and then you can click on them individually or uh, show a listing view of everything that's being tweeted out, um, that this software will archive it and allow you to search it later on. So Steve, you could obviously put your box around the federal courthouse or a state courthouse, correct? Exactly. So what this next demonstrative is showing is exactly a location-based search um, around a courthouse. And then what we do is we, we're searching jury duty. So what this is actually going to pull in is live uh, tweets that have search terms in, uh, have the search term jury duty in that uh, tweet or any uh, public information. It's very important to note that all this information is publicly available. All the, all the software is doing is uh, allowing an investiga investigator or law firm to actively search and memorialize it in a more convenient way as opposed to going to each individual social media platform. Um, so all this is publicly available information, meaning the user has not privatized their page in any way. Um, so anything that is searched around this area comes up as jury duty or whatever it might be. Uh, we can also do, this video also goes into if you're in a particular trial, uh, high profile trial, whatever, whatever trial you might be. So this is a quick demonstrative search of Fernandez trial. It can archive and pull um, all the information of people tweeting about um, tweeting or Facebook or Instagram and all the publicly available information about that particular trial or keyword search, whatever the keyword search might be uh, that the user is interested in. The software allows us to um, download it, archive it, memorialize it, um, search it later need be, search it by user um, and be able to produce that report need be. Um, so the software also captures all the metadata and things to make it admissible in court. Uh, also, as a, you know, we can also do location searches by city and state, as you see here at the end of this demonstrative. So obviously you have um, a panel waiting to be uh, put through jury selection. And if you have someone like Steve doing this, you're getting a real leg up on some of the folks in the courthouse or otherwise. Um, and we're gonna get into all that later. This is really meant to whet your appetite and in part scare you about all the information that's out there uh, that you may or may not realize is available about jurors pre and during the trial. Um, so as we've said, we're going to kind of go from jury selection to uh, monitoring jurors during a trial and then even after the trial and, and touch on again the technology examples and ethics. So you know the first is jury selection. Um, I think everybody understands intuitively why you would want to know certain information about jurors, their biases, their backgrounds, uh, maybe their familiarity with the case or maybe with the subject matter of the case um, and part of your effort to, to find the perfect uh, jury. I think that, you know, in my, my experience, you can get a little lost in this stuff. So certain information is useful to identify outliers. 
meaning the jurors you really know you want to avoid for various reasons you've identified leading up to trial, or those that you just know you embrace. Um, because as we all know, the rest kind of fall in a strange middle where you don't quite know what they're going to do. So <clears throat> I, I believe, and I, you know, I've heard uh, Dennis Donahue is a jury consultant that we've used from time to time, echoes that you want to take advantage of this information um, when you pick your jury, but you don't want to get so lost in it that you lose the forest for the trees. So that, that's, that's one piece as we um, lead into it. Uh, the, the second thing I wanted to note is, um, and, and in some ways it was surprising to me to learn, that judges come at, come at the issue very differently of what lawyers can, should um, be doing vis-a-vis -vis jury investigations on social media and the internet um, at jury selection and during trial. So um, recently the BBA panel, well, several months ago the BBA panel put on a presentation where Judge Burroughs made clear that she doesn't like the idea of jurors being investigated by the attorneys and was surprised, at least my takeaway was that there was some surprise, not surprised, but kind of look, look a little askance that that goes on. Um, so, you know, as a starting point, please, please, please be sure to check your local rules, standing orders, uh, case management orders, and your judge's particular preferences to be sure you're not running afoul of their view of what you should and shouldn't be doing. Um, there was a, you know, and I think probably the safest thing um, is to raise it with the judge ahead of time to be sure you don't run into a problem if you can't find anything that explains what their preferences are. Um, there was a 2014 survey that was done of about 500 federal district uh, judges um, this was in two, uh, 2014, and about close to 5% said they are perfectly comfortable with jurors being investigated in that way through social media. Uh, and again, I'm going to get at the restrictions on doing that, even in the courts that approve of it. We'll get to that just to, to emphasize. Um, 20, almost 26% fell in the category of Judge Burroughs, which is they don't want jurors invaded in that way. Um, and then the rest don't really address it with counsel. I suspect all of those numbers will shift as it becomes more and more prevalent in the tools that Steve is going to show you um, become more, you know, known and, and used. So those are, um, again, those are some of the things to really be careful of uh, in terms of um, looking into them, looking into jurors pre-trial. And then Steve, can, can you talk a little bit, um, obviously in, in some instances, federal court, for example, you might get names and information about jurors ahead of time. Uh, state court, you know, who knows, but you know, it, and often in any court in any jurisdiction, you may just get the information the day of. Can you talk about what, what can be done in those instances if you get it before or during, what kind of technology you need if it's the same day as jury selection? Uh, sure. So obviously getting information or names ahead of time is better. Um, so if you're working in a federal court and have a federal trial, uh, usually we can get those names 24 hours ahead of time of the potential jurors that were going to come into court that day. If you have that um, luxury of getting the jurors' names ahead of time, uh, plan ahead, work with a, um, you know investigatory firm or jury consultant that utilizes specific software for social media investigations um, in such 
ways we use. So we utilize uh, software, very popular software called TLO. Uh, and TLO allows us to input the jurors' names and verify their, um, because the questionnaires will have addresses on them as well, it'll verify the uh, user or the juror's name with the address to make sure we're looking at the right user. We search the, uh, the name of that juror, which will then link all of the email addresses associated with that particular person. So what the software, what the TLO software is allowing us to do is access all publicly available information, wherever that user or that particular person might have utilized an email address linked to their name or a fake name linked to that person. This software is gonna allow us to pull all that information, all their email addresses. And that, and that way we can search all their social media platforms with their real name, uh, potential aliases and email addresses to make sure we're looking at all the social media information. And Steve, I just I just wanted to note, I mean, we, we had a trial and in trials I've been involved in where we've tried to monitor social media, um, but some of the problem we faced were the aliases or the cute nicknames and handles and things like that. So I gather that software may help you take the juror information and actually link it to these kind of oddball ways that people kind of disguise themselves and appropriately so. Um, so you can get over that hurdle, correct? Yes, exactly. So a lot of people do use aliases, um, to, you know, hide themselves from the public eye. Um, depending upon your occupation, you might not want to be searchable. So a lot of people do use aliases and, you know, not, not a bad thing to do. Um, so utilizing TLO can allow you to find aliases and other email addresses associated with um, their social media platforms. If you don't have that luxury of getting the jurors listing ahead of time and you're in state court, and you get that, you get the questionnaire packet, you know, as the jury's walking in, um, you, can, you can be prepared for that as well. You can either talk to a jury consultant uh, or an investigatory firm ahead of time and say, we're going to, you know, even if it's a high profile state case, you can bring them in um, to make sure that you can live search these people as they're being questioned or go flipping through the questionnaires and getting ahead of it. Um, I know it's fast paced when you're doing jury selection, so it can be difficult. So, you know, you can either get an associate of yours, uh, bring them in, um, make sure, you're obviously, you're going to need an internet connection and a laptop. Um, a lot of courts, it's very difficult. So a lot of people, we would use a personal hotspot with our phone or through a cell provider um, with a laptop. And a lot of things you can do is, you know, either as with it being fast paced, I will show you, uh, this is a good time, Michelle, to show the searches through Google and things like that. Um, actually, quick question, Steve. Sure. Um, someone has a question. They want to know whether the software you're talking about uh, uses the IP address to figure out aliases. Um, no, uh, the IP addresses would be um, associated with the internet connection itself. So um, the IPs are not linked. So internet protocol addresses will not be linked through the TLL search. I think we, when we get to the monitoring the jury, maybe we'll look at some of those slides. Um, what so? You know, the basic information you will need, though, you, you're, to do it on the fly, you're going to need an internet connection or a hotspot. How many people is ideal to have sifting through this information to be able to get it to the attorneys doing the jury selection in a timely way? I mean, at least, you know, it uh, can be difficult, but I mean, three, I think, would be ideal if you have the resources to bring in three people or, again, three people max. Uh, is, you know, you can have as many people as you want searching the stuff. So, I mean, even if you have one person associate with, it, with you in the court, that's also emailing or chatting with uh, associates that are outside available to you uh, that are able to live communicate with you uh, would be ideal to do that. Yeah. And, you know, and we've certainly done this kind of on with our own resources in cases where, 
when you have it the day before or a couple of days before. Um, but I don't know that when we did it candidly, we had all the technology we did at the time we were doing that. So we probably didn't get as much information. Exactly. Um, and, and do you have any estimate just for the, not the jury consultant and that whole shebang, but if you're just looking at the, the cost roughly of having a forensic person handling that research for you for jury selection, is it cost prohibitive in most cases or do you think it's something that's accessible in a lot of cases? It all depends on the, you know, the type of case you're working on and um, what information you're looking to, what you're, what information you're looking to gather. So if you're, if you're talking about just during jury selection, um, if you don't have the jurors' names ahead of time and you're doing it live, um, a lot of times the, the TLO search is going to be too far behind and what basically an investigatory forum is going to do is just publicly available information live through basically a Google search. So, um, having your resources at hand or your associates uh, available to do that with you is probably more cost effective uh, just to have people within your firm if you're, if you're doing a live search um, just during jury selection. Afterwards, afterwards, once you have the jury seated, you can discuss things like that. So you can do live captures with uh, jury consultants and investigatory firms. The, the cost always varies depending on the firm. Um, they can, they, it could be a flat cost based on how many jurors there are capturing that information. Um, so it depends on, you know, the funds you have available for that particular case. That sounds like you can use your own firm resources too and maybe invest in the software for that period. But why don't we, Matt, can we kick it over to you to talk about, uh, to give us the, feel like the weather report, which is not really how I meant to make it sound. Um, but turning now to some of the issues and examples of monitoring jurors, uh, you know, once they're seated, um, what you're keeping track of and how that works. Great, thanks, Michelle. So, if we're going to let's start by looking at just the variety of things that a juror can do that could potentially be problematic. So, broadly speaking, um, the most obvious would be looking up information about the case on a you know a news article or on a blog. On top of that, they can also theoretically comment either anonymously or non-anonymously, identifying themselves as a juror on some of these articles or blog posts, which can not it's not only them getting information that's outside of the courtroom but it's also them potentially sharing information that should be kept um, private um, additionally jurors and and we've seen this in some of the examples that we'll, we'll discuss jurors can look up information about not only the, the parties of the case but also about the attorneys and this can also raise some red flags where if that juror is going to even if they just keep it to themselves that could inform their decision but they could also share it amongst the other jurors um, some other i mean and then of course we are discussing social media and so one of the probably main issues at the forefront of this discussion is posting on social media because everything is public and because everything can be readily accessible jurors can not only take in social media so read posts about a high profile case that they're sitting on or they can post about their experience during the trial which can not only negatively impact um the, the potential jury decision but it can impact just the media coverage as well one of the tools to potentially avoid some of these issues would be to have the court issue um, instructions to the jury to refrain from some of this activity. So in 2012, the Judicial Conference Committee um, published some model instructions that really focus on these issues. And we'll, we'll share this, um, a copy of this with you after this session. But what, they, what these instructions do is they 
give orders to the jury, not only at the beginning of the trial itself, and ideally a judge will repeat these instructions on each day of the trial, but there are also a separate set of instructions that are to be given um, right before deliberation, mimicking some of the same language. And effectively what these, um, these instructions do is they first alert the jury that should they notice anyone else um, engaging in any of this behavior in terms of looking up parties, sharing information, or just using social media while with the jury. It's, it's, that, it's the jury's responsibility to report that to the court. And then, of course, the instructions themselves um, direct the jurors to refrain from using um, any type of social media with respect to the case, um, alerts them to refrain from looking up information, and generally just tells them to just don't speak with anyone else about the case. Um, in terms of the usefulness of these types of instructions, so Michelle mentioned the 2014 survey. This was completed by the um, Judicial Conference Committee, and they wanted to gauge whether federal district court judges were actually utilizing these instructions and whether they felt they were helpful. So if we just want to go through a couple of these um, information points. So of 494 judges who were um, questioned, so 6.7%, which is 33 of them, responded that during, during the past two years, so that would be from 2012 to 2014, they themselves um, experienced some type of juror misconduct with respect to the use of social media. So although it's not a large number, out of only the 500 judges who were questioned, 33 of them did come back saying that this was an issue. So it is something that all attorneys need to be aware of. And these same judges, when asked how they learned of this information, the two most common ways in which they learned about the misconduct were firstly was reporting from other jurors. So that indicates that when instructed, jurors were willing to share that information with the court if they noticed some type of misconduct. And the second most common type of way that um, judges learned of this information was from an attorney. And so that really highlights our role as attorneys to make sure we're doing our duty to monitor jurors. Some other interesting data that came out of this study. So 70% of judges who were asked and, and then answered this question said that they themselves had issued some type of instruction. And 50% of the judges said that they used these model instructions. One thing to be aware of if you do want to rely on these model instructions is that because they were drafted in 2012, they, don't necess they aren't necessarily up to date with respect to the types of social media that's being used. So the model instructions really focus on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube as kind of the key platforms. However, as the social media environment is, is rapidly developing, um, it might be useful if you do want to utilize these instructions to make sure you're including some of the other platforms such as Instagram, Snapchat, or Reddit, where more and more people are getting involved and are able to share information readily. And then the last kind of really key point out of this survey was that 70% 70, 70 of the judges who did issue these instructions found that they found the instructions to be either successful or very successful in preventing um, some type of jury misconduct. So this really highlights that if you can get a court to um, issue these instructions, you should do so. And, theory, and so we'll, we'll circulate this report um, with the survey data. This, might, this data might also be a tool for you should you come across a judge who might be unwilling to um, utilize 
these types of curative instructions, um, you, could, you can present this data as proof that other judges are using this, these types of instructions to some, some success. Yeah, and I think you can use some of the statistics about how much juror activity there is that there shouldn't be to help as well. I mean, I, I, we had a high profile case a few years ago um, and we got a basic instruction, you know, it was a three month trial and an instruction, you know, at the beginning, at the end, and maybe once in between. Um, and we were trying to encourage more frequent instructions and perhaps with some of those statistics, we, you know, we may have had more luck. Um, just while I'm talking, as someone noted, and I wanted to, to highlight in terms of jury selection that the state courts do give out the information as well. Um, most of my trials recently have been in federal court and when it was in state court, we weren't really getting a ton of what I would want, I guess, ahead of time that I recall. So thanks for that um, correction. And, and then just another question, so I don't forget and it either Matt or, or perhaps Steve, um, question came up and I think it's a really good one either during jury selection or even if you're doing it during trial, but I think especially at jury selection, um, if you're there at counsel tables sort of fran frantically typing and shuffling, et cetera, um, do you think the juror realized what you were doing? And are you concerned that they can see all of these strangers um, wildly doing something that seemed to have to do with them? Um, you know, what do you do to guard against that? What are your thoughts? I think, you know, it depends on the court that you're in as well, because, um, you know, a lot of times this isn't when we say we're doing a live search, a lot of times we're not doing it as the jurors up speaking at, you know, at um, the bar with the judge and the attorneys. It's when you get and I was unaware that's, you know, you could get the names ahead of time in state court. So that's good to know. But um, if you were doing it live, you're doing it with the questionnaires um, as you flip it through the questionnaires and people are just accessing certain information that we can get. Um, it's not as the juror is really sitting there watching you. Um, it's getting the information hopefully ahead of, slightly ahead of time before um, the jury is, you know, voir dire, the juror is voir dire. Um, so I've never really run into an instance where the juror is going to be seeing um, the investi investigation going on uh, for the most part. Um, so again, it's it, I'm sure it depends on the court and how the judge is really going to be handling the voir dires of each juror. That's a great question, though. I mean, any juror investigation, and we'll talk about it a little bit when you're you're touching upon their social media, you can leave an imprint that you were there. Um, and we'll, I'll talk in a moment about the ethical concerns about that. But then they're just the practical concerns that you don't want jurors to think you're creepy, because that is not a good way to start off a trial. So I think those practical um, issues are as important to keep in mind as, as some of the other issues that you're talking about. But uh, thanks for letting me interrupt, Matt. No problem. And so, so that really wraps it up with respect to kind of the instructions. And so now let's quickly touch on some recent examples that might be useful to give some color and, and context to what we're talking about. So a fairly recent First Circuit case. So United States v. Zimney. Um, it was initially before Judge Zobel in the district court and then was appealed. Um, this was a 2017 case involving um, a prosecution for counts of wire fraud and bank fraud. Um, and so during the trial, there were no model instructions used with respect to social media use. And the only related instruction was given on the 12th day of trial, which was to require that the jurors refrain from looking at any media coverage. Now, for some context here, during the course of both the civil and criminal proceedings, there was a blog that covered 
this case specifically. And it allowed for anonymous posters to discuss the case and give input, give feedback, give their opinions. About midway through the trial, one of the jurors was dismissed from the case because of sick illness and they were replaced. Shortly thereafter, there was an anonymous post on this blog where a person claimed to be a juror on the case who said that um, there was a 50-50% chance of the verdict going one way or the other. Now, the government had actually been monitoring this blog throughout the duration of the trial. And so this was the night before deliberations, um, this, this post came about and they notified the defense and the defense subsequently moved for a motion for a new trial. Now, what Judge Zobel did in the district court was take this information and then question um, the juror who had, who had left because it, it, there was indication that um, this, this commenter was that juror. Um, in, the, in the juror's testimony, the juror said that, you know, they had only done this after they had left the jury pool, that um, they had not discussed the blog post with anyone else in the jury, and at no point had they, brought, had they discussed any social media or internet coverage of the case with the jury. And at that point, Judge Zobel was satisfied and um, denied the motion for a new trial. Um, the conviction came down, and then an, an, another... Um, post appeared on this website where another person claimed to be a different juror claimed that the dismissed juror had actually brought this up during um, the time they were impaneled and had actively discussed the specific blog and had raised all of these issues. So of course the defense used this as um, part of their appeal up to the First Circuit. What the First Circuit did was take a look at the context of all this information coming about, and they elected to remand the case back to Judge Zobel for further investigation. And what resulted from this was um, a full investigation of all the jurors, testimony taken, they hired um, tracking of the IP addresses of the posts to try to determine who was making these posts. And ultimately, the um, Judge Zobel found that this additional post wasn't from a juror, and so it didn't have any impact on the, on the case. But what this does highlight is the importance of making sure you're not only monitoring social media, but any type of blog coverage of, of a case, especially a high profile case, where you can have these, these persons, whether they might be jurors or not, making comments as such, which could have an impact on um, not only the verdict, but also could raise appealable issues. And if we jump just to, to some other high profile cases that have been in the news recently. So in the Southern District of New York, um, the, the conviction of Joshua Schulte, who was a CIA analyst who leaked classified materials as part of the WikiLeaks leaks. Um, so in early March, um, the judge dismissed one of the jurors after the foreperson of the jury came forward and said that this juror had looked up information about one of the defense attorneys and had shared it with the rest of the jurors. And in this case, there had been an instruction against the use of social media and um, online searches. And so ultimately the case ended on a mistrial for the major counts because, and, and part of this could be that the judge elected not to replace the juror who was removed. And so this highlights once again that Staying on top of social media is important for creating potential appealable issues should the verdict go against um, what you're looking for. Additionally, 
what this does, what this goes to show is the importance of these model instructions, because without the model instruction telling the jurors to be aware of this information and to report it should they see it, this information might not have come forward and that juror might have remained on in the jury. Uh, lastly, um, the Harvey Weinstein case in, in New York State Court um, has really focused a lot on, the, on social media from, the, from voir dire all the way through to the appeal. So out of a pool of 140 um, potential jurors, at the outset, the defense dedicated significant resources into investigating um, the social media of the jurors. And they were able to get jurors dismissed because of some fairly inflammatory remarks that were made. As an example, one of the potential jurors tweeted, if anyone knows how a person might hypothetically leverage serving on a jury of a high profile case to promote their novel deal, DM me please. So of course, the defense immediately moved to dismiss this juror, but this goes to show that um, social media is really important in, in the early stages to try to remove jurors who could potentially prejudice the case. Um, however, something that Michelle touched on earlier, it's important to make sure you're staying focused on the, the key issues. So despite all the resources that were used, um, one juror who actually wasn't paneled um, had actually previously written in a fairly meaningful way on sexual assault and sexual abuse. And even during the trial itself, um, this juror had published online a book review of a book that dealt with the impacts of sexual misconduct and sexual abuse. And so, of course, this was about as least, least ideal a juror as the defense could have imagined having on the jury. And despite their significant resources, they managed to miss it. And so they, they have come out and said um, subsequently after the conviction that this juror will be one of the keystones of their appeal. And, and they have hired um, private investigators and are ded dedicating some significant resources into continually to investigate this one particular juror, knowing that they, if this juror had injected some of their personal beliefs into um, deliberations, it could have had a, a significant impact. Too, is that the defense may have even raised it during the trial and couldn't get any traction. Um, does that sound right or was it that they didn't see it at all? So I think, I think they, they did raise it at points during the trial, but part of it was because they were, and th this is some reading between the lines, but because they used, they put so much focus on social media use and on trying to remove jurors, I think there was a certain point where they that the, the court had, had almost fatigued on this idea that every single person was somehow um, against the defense and therefore they couldn't, they wouldn't qualify as jurors. And so it, that, that's at least how every, the coverage has read, but it's hard to tell exactly what happened. It's a good time, Matt. I wanna get Steve to talk about sort of the technical resources available to do that. Um, I wanna kick it off with a question that somebody had though, Steve. And that is, the question was, had you used um, the software that you showed, the X1 software that you showed at the beginning of the presentation where you circled the airport and could see what everybody was tweeting, have you used that either monitoring a, a jury or, you know, at jury selection? And can you give some examples of what, what you've come across or you've heard people find using that? Yeah, so I mean, we have utilized the X1 social discovery software during jury selection. The, um, the 
you know, the time we utilized it was when the listing was provided ahead of time. So it gave us a little uh, leeway into searching that information. Uh, I think it's very important to note and, you know, keep in mind that during jury selection, you got to, um, you know, stick to your normal selection process and, um, you know, with or without social, if you didn't have the social media, what would your normal selection process be? What jurors are you looking for? What jurors are you looking to keep out and stick to that process? Don't let the social media during the jury selection process, um, you know, swayed you away too much from that normal selection. You got to, so when you're going into that jury selection, the, the social media uh, access and what we're pulling and culling the data and providing to the law firms um, have key points. Say, you know, you look, so you know what potential jurors you're looking for and just utilize their pages um, to make sure it doesn't necessarily, you know, sway weight outside of the jury you're looking for because the, the data can be, you know, voluminous. You could be flipping through pages and pages and pages for hours on one juror. So you really just want to keep to, you know, stick to your normal selection process, utilize the page as a reference point to make sure there's nothing, you know, crazy on their page that would, you know, not want them on your jury. Um, so utilizing the software more on monitoring the juries, you know, where it really comes, you know, to be beneficial because, you know, the jury may be seated in the courtroom. Now, you, you know, we, we can monitor everything going on through the location services outside or inside the courtroom. Obviously, um, you know, we access a lot of publicly available information when during the lunch breaks or whatever, when people go out um, for their lunch break, whatever it might be for certain cases, and that's when they're utilizing their phones more often. Uh, so we will access, you know, depending on the case, if we wanna um, capture all the information around the courthouse live and monitor that, um, and we can relay any information that we may get back to the firm or the attorney that, you know, requested the data. Um, and, and having all of the jurors publicly available information during the trial is that's when you really want to start monitoring it because um, you know it might not be live but you want to be able to monitor that when they go home at night or before you know court starts and um, what people are tweeting or putting on Facebook uh, can be you know quite surprising. And have you seen examples of that though with the X1 where where you've actually located people speaking inappropriately or maybe at least identified, okay, we have a juror who's active, we got to really monitor that person during the uh, So, I mean, I do have examples here. I can put it up on the screen um, of the X1 software in particular, what it does, what it has pulled, um, you know, for jury information. Let me see here. Um, So again, this is, you know, we saw this a little bit before. Uh, this is, would be, you know, a live geo location stream. Uh, this is kind of large. Obviously, we could narrow it down depending upon, you know, where the courthouse is or whatever it might be. This is an example just showing uh, a place in Las Vegas. But this is um, one example of public information um, regarding jury duty um, that people put out there on Twitter and Facebook alike. Um, this is again public information. It's not like anyone's friends with these people or how the software would obtain this information. This is publicly available. Pages are not blocked, whatever it might be, as well as the comments available to these people. Um, so this is uh, a more local, <clears throat> excuse me, this is with X1 Social Discovery. We can run searches, whatever it might be, again, with keywords. This one would be I hate jury duty for instance, um, and this is right in Essex County, uh, people posting. So, I mean, you can um, you can get like an overzealous juror that you may or may not want and things like that, because obviously you can search the, the you know, the opposite and someone that really loves jury duty and they're really excited about that. So you can see 
you know, this particular That's jury sometimes. <laughs> right, an overzealous, you know, there's someone that just wants to be on the jury. Um, and then here, this is some other X1 information that was captured with X1. And so this just shows you um, what people put out there that's public information that they're not thinking obviously sometimes when they're doing it um, and uh, this is stuff that you need to be aware of um, that we that can be captured with the software it's public information um, and the, you know these examples are people that are actually on jury duty that are actively tweeting or on Facebook about it or Instagram real examples correct these aren't ones these are real examples that's and, and steve one, one question that was raised in the chat so we're talking mainly about public information but of course there, there could be private messages between jurors or jurors to um, third parties is there any type of technology or any type of um, resources out there to get access to some of these private messages or is that largely um, really out of the scope of, of anything that we can do uh, that's basically, I mean, private messages for jurors would be out of the scope for this type. So, I mean, speaking of juries in particular, um, it's, we're, we're stuck with publicly available information. Okay. Did you have more, Steve, that you want to cover in terms of the tools available uh, to monitor social media and other online presence of jurors? Or have you... I didn't want to cut you off. Is uh, no, so I mean, um, again, I, just, I mean, if you want me to go through briefly, I mean, what's a, just, let me see here if I go back. Just examples of, um, you know, open source investigations that you can do, utilize as a firm um, with your associates that can be helpful um, and just how to organize it. I mean, it's very simple. Again, the software that we're using is accessing publicly available information. So realistically, all it's doing is, is culling and compiling all publicly available information across all platforms and social media platforms. So it's just, it's a tool to make our lives easier um, and it comes at a fee. But if you have the time, so let's, you know, say the juror, jury is already seated. You have their names, you have their addresses of who the jurors are. Now you can actually sit down um, within your firm or, you know, hire someone at that point to utilize software or just use open source software. So, I mean, you can simply utilize Google or any other search platform and obtain certain information that'll help you, you know, monitor the jurors um, during the trial. So, I mean, simply Googling the name of the person will bring up a listing you see here um, of all the Facebook the pages and you can get them. So here's what you re we really want to focus is that highlight. Uh, that would be the Facebook user ID. And that's the actual person's Facebook ID. That's what you want to, you know, take note of. And then you can keep going through Instagram John Doe. So obviously you would swap out the name John Doe for whoever the juror is and attempt to find their publicly available information. Um, that would be Instagram. And then what, very simply, if you're not hiring an outside firm and, or utilizing software to do so, um, you just keep a listing of all these pages. And this is a great way to open source and free with, within the firm to archive and um, just monitor the jurors um, Facebook. A good way board. to make sure that you don't end up with a horse on your jury in a, in a <laughs> yeah. different way. So good work, Steve. Yeah. So, I mean, this way you just keep the, the, the uh, listings of the information. You can click these links daily to make sure they haven't posted anything um, about your trial. This is also you know, a great tool to take note of, graph.tips. 
um, if you just type that into your web browser uh, and you get, this is strictly Facebook, but it's still a powerful tool. If you uh, punch in that user ID I showed you earlier, how to obtain that, you can actually just search. Um, where did, Steve, sorry, where did you find graph.tips and then you put in their Facebook profile? Is that what you just did? Yeah, so I mean, if you, um, so the graph.tips, you go into a web browser, that's all you have to type in. There's no www or .com. Um, so like, if I go back here, yeah, so right here you see the highlighted numbers. That would be the user's um, Facebook ID. So that's what you would use on graph.tips. Um, and then you can actually search certain things with that entity ID that you can punch in here. As you can see, posts by that user, tag locations, photos, um, photos seen by that user, which would be useful to see what they're looking at. Um, uh, just a quick listing. I mean, these are some of the paid subscription services that they um, that are out there. A lot of them are obviously most of them are available to law firms, um, whatever it might be. And luckily, which is nice, is a lot of them do offer a, a monthly subscription uh, package. Meaning, so if you are just utilize, you know, you don't want to buy it for the year. You're you're going into a high profile trial or not even high profile, but one that's very important. You can just access it for the month, whatever it might be. Um, they, you know. This would be Hanzo is one of, um, you can see the URL in the top there. Um, very, you know, it's a great tool that tags, culls, and, and exports the searches. And the, the best part about the paid subscription services is it archives all of the metadata associated with the postings, meaning it has the user IDs, the dates, the times, the URLs, um, server IDs. And so if it's coming from Facebook, it shows that internal information that would make it admissible, need be at court. And, um, this is also, uh, so Pipple is a great tool. It's um, basically a, it's a, it's a high end. Can I, can I interrupt for a second, Steve? I'm sorry. Um, all of this, I, my understanding is we're going to provide through the BBA materials from this with yes. these presentations. So if you're like me and some of this is like rolling by quickly, um, you'll have it available to look at so you know where to, um, where yes, to go. I yeah, I'll provide it all with the materials as well. You know, our emails will be at the end of this. Contact me um, with any questions. I, a lot of times it's a case-by-case -case basis, as we know. Um, so you can certainly contact me. I'll be, feel free to answer questions uh, if you want to set up another call, whatever it might be. So uh, Pipple is a very, very powerful tool. It's basically a, um, it's like a TLO. So what it does is you can punch in the username, not the username, juror name in this, the city and town. It's going to pull up some of the information. And what's nice is you can see here is it's, it's pulling up, like we explained with TLO, it's pulling all the pages, skills, um, additional names, which would the, that'd be the aliases. That's where it allows us to search um, the person's, you know, other aliases or names that they might be using um, to create these pages. Yeah, and Steve mentioned, you know, obviously it's best if you can get all the background information and the metadata and everything else you need to be able to authenticate it. When yeah. you're in kind of the throes of trial, um, the truth is do whatever you can to capture information that you come across if, if it's something you need to bring to the court's attention. So screenshot, preferably by a paralegal or someone else, not you. You don't want to be the one um, who has to explain where it came from if there's testimony. Otherwise, you don't want to make yourself a witness. Uh, but the truth is, unlike evidence that you use at trial, where it's even more important to have all of those indicia of authenticity and reliability, et cetera, during a trial, if you present a screenshot of something problematic to the judge, he or she can very quickly authenticate it with the juror, 
if it warrants that kind of attention. So, you know, I call it sort of guerrilla warfare, which is just make sure you capture it before it's gone in some fashion. Um, and Steve, I was going to move now to, to highlight some of the ethical issues about the work you're highlighting, but I want to make sure I didn't um, cut you off. No, sure. go ahead. Uh, and mindful of the time as well. So a few ethical things. First, I want to mention, um, you know, we all this excitement about finding the materials. There are some real, you know, I think we all understand their ethical duties once you locate it. Um, and so that I wanted to highlight right away. You can't pick and choose. You find the jury um, tweeting about how much they adore your client. Unfortunately, you have an oblig the same obligation to bring that forward as you would if you didn't like the information. Um, the, the ethical rule, uh, you know, it, it's a little unclear in that 3.3b of the rules of professional conduct and the model rules, absolutely you have to bring it forward if there's fraud or a crime. Um, beyond that, it, it gets a little murky, but I think the general consensus is that if it's material in any way, what you've found through your research, you do need to bring it forward. Um, so, you know, again, take a close look at your ethical rules, but uh, I think the general guidance is that beyond something immaterial, like they hate the lunch at the courthouse or something like that, uh, you likely have to bring forward what you found, um, and people can run a follow of it that way. Um, I also want to, to highlight um, some of the other rules about, about this, because you, you hear from Steve and you hear all this great information that's out there. And of course, all you want to do is go grab that information. But I, I want to talk about a few of the ethical considerations, really on both sides. First off, um, there are some ethical rules that really push us to make sure that you're aware of these things, which, you know, you're on the program. So that's a good start. Um, and that you use it. So, for example, um, we've got all the duty of uh, zealous representation, which means you ought to be taking advantage of all the tools available. Um, and then as of 2015, Massachusetts rules of professional conduct were updated to follow the, the ABA model rules uh, to, to say that in addition to being aware of changes in the law, etc., that attorneys are also required to be familiar with the benefits and risks associated with relevant technology. Um, and I think more and more you're going to see that duty arise in this context of um, uh, you know, monitoring jurors uh, and, and the duty to do that. Um, so there's certainly been malpractice cases where juror, uh, pardon me, lawyers have failed to capture evidence that was highly relevant to their case, whether admissions on social media by the opponent or uh, information on social media and otherwise that uh, would really have impeached a key witness. So there have absolutely been malpractice cases of, uh, in, in, you know, like that. And I think we're apt to see them as well if um, attorneys fail to pick up on, in a timely way on significant misconduct uh, during a case. Um, and, and Matt, I know, maybe we'll get to that in a minute. Um, and so th there is a formal ABA opinion, opinion 466, which will be in our materials. It's a really great discussion of some of the ethical issues that I'll touch on, and I'd encourage you to read it. It does not take a position on whether um, you fail to meet the standard of conduct by failing to take advantage of these techniques that we're talking about. But I think more and more as they become, and, and they are becoming more run-of-the-mill and sort of a given, 
I, I think you're going to start to see it be a more affirmative duty. And in fact, uh, it's the Association of the Bar of the City of New York, um, which had a committee on professional ethics, went a little further in saying that they think there may well be a duty to do all of the things we've been talking about in this program. Um, it wouldn't, you wouldn't be a lawyer if your obligation to do something didn't run smack into all of these things you have to be afraid of if you do those. And in this instance, that is also true because there are obviously a lot of ethical restrictions on, on the way you gather this information. Um, so first, there are really two bodies of concerns, I think, ethically to, to be worried about or pay attention to. One are those relating to communications with jurors. We all know we can't, you can't communicate with jurors, you can't have ex parte communications with jurors. Um, unfortunately, with social media, what used to be very clear when you're communicating with a juror, it gets a little more blurred when you're looking at their social media. So, um, you know, the general rule, again, is first, as we highlighted, there's some judges that just say, don't do it. So be really careful you're not in front of one of those judges. Um, and clarify with them if you're not sure. Uh, but number two, uh, and, and are the rules surrounding what you can look at and what you can't look at. So, and these vary. There isn't a lot of guidance in Massachusetts, but there is kind of a, a body of sort of common law and ethical rules across the country that make clear certain principles. And one is um, public information is, you know, it's not unethical to look at a juror's public information is pretty well agreed to, again, assuming the judge doesn't tell you not to. Um, it is not appropriate to friend, certainly a juror that's considered a communication. So to reach out to them, even acknowledging who you are um, and not hiding that is an improper communication with a juror. And as is the case, generally what you can't do, you can't have somebody else do. So you can't have a paralegal or some other third party reach out to jurors to get uh, friended and otherwise get access to additional information that's non-public. Um, so those are some of the obvious do's and don'ts. One thing to really be aware of is that a lot of the social media sites um, have, have features where the juror, in this case, is notified that you you looked at their information. So on LinkedIn, you can pay for the extra feature where uh, LinkedIn will notify the juror, you know, attorney purse was looking at your LinkedIn profile. Um, and likewise on Facebook, uh, you know, I would get offered up to that juror as a friend if Facebook saw that I was looking around on their, on their page. Um, we talked about the creepy factor, just, you wouldn't want that anyway. That's the last thing you want a juror putting aside the ethics. Um, but there is a real question about whether those footprints or notifications are ex parte communications with jurors or potential jurors. So again, your duty to be aware of the benefits and risks of technology includes being aware when you're fishing around, whether you're leaving a footprint. Um, and uh, again, at least one, um, let me see where it was, the, um, again, the New York County Lawyers Association um, has said in an opinion that that actually may be an impermissible communication with a juror simply because the platform notified them that you were there. So you have to be careful, make sure you understand how those sites work before you or your consultant 
um, do anything with them. Um, and, and again, uh, that ABA opinion 466 is, is a terrific uh, walkthrough of the, the do's and don'ts. Um, Matt, I think you had a really uh, high profile and, and good example of, of how some of these um, ethical issues might play out. Absolutely. So the, the case in question is uh, United States v. Zarnayev. So it's the Boston bombing case. Um, this is in front of Judge O'Toole. And on a motion for a new trial, amongst other arguments, the defense argued that um, the jurors were prejudiced by the social media exposure surrounding the case. Now, what, what kind of implicates some of these ethical considerations regarding um, reporting the information in a timely manner, um, the, the Judge O'Toole found, he said, you know, at the outset, um, he considered the argument waived because um, the defense had access to all of this information in terms of any of the jurors' social media exposure or comments um, during the course of the trial, and they didn't raise it. And how he found this out was in the, in the evidence to, that was presented to support um, this argument in terms of Facebook posts and reports of, that collected um, social media data, they were dated during the trial. And, you know, a, a somewhat powerful quote in, in the opinion, he says, in light of the evident effort the defendant ex expended on social network research during the jury selection and the nature of his venue objection, it strains credulity to suggest that no one on the defense team could follow or actually was following the jury's social media activity during the course of the proceedings. And so what this really highlights is that if you're going to be monitoring um, social media data from jurors, which we should be, you need to make sure you are timely in reporting that to the court because here's an example where even though they might, might have had the ammunition to um, raise legitimate concerns about the jury, because they failed to do so when they first received this information, they lost the chance to make an argument on it. And, you know, this really implicates some of these ethical duties that Michelle mentioned, where even though there, we, have, we didn't find any examples of this happening, theoretically, if you failed to properly monitor your social media and an adverse verdict came down, the, there could be potential grounds for your client to find that you violated your ethical duties to, um, to them to make sure that you were zealously defending them. So that's just something to keep in mind as, as we're engaging in this social media review and monitoring that we need to make sure that we are on top of it. And it's obviously tough with everything going on at trial. Now you have to worry about what your crazy jurors are doing and then reporting it. So it, it, it's a lot. Um, and so that's why we're trying to highlight how important it can be um, and how courts look at that. Um, we, there's another question. I know we're kind of running out of time, but <laughs> since some of us have nothing but time right now in many ways, uh, happy to press on for those who can. But the question is, and, and I think maybe folks listening in, if you have some thoughts about this too, um, if you want to weigh in and we'll read them out loud. But the question is, have you ever proposed jury questions that include questions about the potential jurors' use of social media or even their online handles or names? Uh, especially for those of us who work for a government agency and can't utilize these uh, technological tools or parties whose resources are more limited, is that an option that you have utilized and if so, was the judge receptive? Um, 
I'll answer, and it's not terribly helpful, I have not utilized that. I think in a high profile case where you have a judge who is more open to people uh, searching, um, th that's not a bad thing to request to level the playing field. I think a lot will be a little squeamish about it is my guess, but again, I, there is absolutely no harm in asking and then you know armed with some of the studies that Matt referenced to show why it's so important and why you know it isn't fair for the government not to have that access where you know maybe you have a well-funded defendant for example um, you know has the ability to, to dig past aliases and that sort of thing. Um, Steve I don't know if, if you've come across that or Matt so I can't answer beyond that but I, I encourage um, people listening in if you have a thought about that to um, to let us know. Yeah, I mean, I haven't personally, um, you know, been part of a trial where the judge requested handles or specific usernames of the jurors in particular. Um, so I can't really answer, you know, the fact of how the judge would be receptive to it, but it's not a bad request, you know, for sure. Yeah, I just, I have a sense, you know, my sense, as I said, it's hard to even get some judges to do the model instruction and to do it repeatedly because there's a sense that it sort of is offensive to the jurors. And I think it may be that a lot don't mind in concept that you're researching jurors and their social media, but it may, I have a feeling it may become more concrete to them when you start saying, I want their username and handle, and uh, it, it may, um, draw attention to it in a way that causes them to think more and, and, and not. I, I don't see anybody... I think, the, I think the request for usernames and handles from the jurors in particular would um, really limit the, the their use of social media at trial as well, yeah. knowing that their handles have been turned over. It's a really good point. That would be another benefit yeah. <laughs> from my perspective. Um, so I don't see anybody, unfortunately, offering their thoughts about whether they've done that. Um, and, you know, would be delighted to take other questions. Um, anything not to go back to the, the dog and some of what's going on in my house right now. So I'll take questions really for the next month or so if people are interested. Um, I, is there anything else there, guys, before I... So, so I think just the last thing to kind of briefly mention is that, you know, I'd say the monitoring doesn't end after a verdict comes down. It's also important to continue to monitor the jurors' social media use after the verdict and general media coverage as well, because, I mean, as, as the Harvey Weinstein case kind of emphasizes, there, there can be continued um, information to be gleaned from jurors that could have um, benefits on appeal should, should you not get the, the verdict you're looking for. And it jurors might, after coming out of um, deliberations, might feel that they no longer have, the, have any responsibility to keep private what went on in the, during deliberations. And there's information that could be gleaned there that um, is really important to continue to monitor. So, so that's just something to keep in mind that um, it, really it really, really runs from voir dire all the way through past the verdict. So I think it's been an hour. I don't see any other questions. So I uh, really appreciate people um, signing in and, and listening. I hope it's been useful. And I really do wish everybody good health. And I'm eager to have in-person brown bags very soon. So take care, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.